Hi, and welcome to Network AF. Today, I'm here with my friend Dave Schaefer, who's built one of the leading carriers that connects us all in the digital world, Cogent. You may notice my mask is on because he is graciously hosting me here in beautiful downtown DC. Today, we're going to talk about paths into technology, science and technology, culture, a lot of business topics around capital and growth and focus and execution, and learn a little bit about how the company was made and where it's going, which as you'll see is a lot of like uh, where it's been. Hello, and welcome to Network AI. I'm here with my friend, Dave Schaefer, leader of Cogent in beautiful downtown DC. I'm also here for the World Science Fiction Convention, but thought that we would do this episode in person. And hi, Dave, you could introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, hi. Thanks for joining me, Avi. I'm Dave Schaefer, Cogent's founder and CEO. So I always ask people to start, how did you get into networking? I know I'll go back a little bit, maybe, Dave, and how did you get interested in, in, in technology? Woo. Uh, you know, it should be a short answer, but in this case, it's probably going to be a little bit of a long answer. Okay. So I got involved. Well, first of all, in technology, uh, going to school as I was a physics major, but uh, in business, I had the first business I ran was actually a taxicab company and related to the taxicab business was the need for mobile radios for dispatch. And at that time, two major changes were occurring. One Motorola, which dominated that market, went from being a manufactured direct distributed model to establishing dealers, mm -hmm. uh, which I became one of those. And then secondly, the frequency bands were also being uh, allocated on a proprietary basis as opposed to a shared basis. Per city? Uh, per so uh, you could actually own them, but you did not have to pay for them if you met certain learning requirements. And as a result, I started uh, developing a number of SMR systems or specialized mobile radio systems that eventually got rolled up to what became Nextel. Mm -hmm. uh, I also, from that, expanded into a second technology venture, which was paging. I was a paging carrier up and down the East Coast, including covering your market, Philadelphia, mm -hmm. where you were based. Yeah. And this was in the early 90s. Mm -hmm had the good fortune to sell that business while there was still a business to sell. <laughs> uh, my third uh, technology business was based on a regulatory complexity created when the government decided to reallocate spectrum for personal communication services or PCS, creating additional cellular carriers. So initially, there were only two licenses granted, an A and a B license. The government decided to ultimately grant four additional licenses. But in doing so, 
when they granted those licenses, the winners in an auction of those licenses had the obligation to relocate the existing licensees who were not communications mm -hmm. companies, but industrial. Who was using licenses. the frequency, the spectrum. That's correct. And I created a business that uh, managed that process for those companies, created excess capacity, and aggregated and built a nationwide network uh, through that regulatory catalyst. And uh, actually, that company raised a significant amount of capital. Uh, it actually had public debt, but uh, attempted to go public and in the markets were not in mm -hmm. our favor and eventually was able to sell that business. And realizing that the network that had both the lowest cost and the most ubiquity <clears throat> would eventually win, I became convinced in the mid-90s that the internet would be the only network that mattered. And by building a internet network, most companies overlaid either a telephone network, a cable TV network, or a mobile phone network. And it was possible by the late 90s to build a much more efficient network, capitalizing on two major uh, changes in the marketplace. First, the ability to buy dark fiber rather than build all of your network infrastructure, right. which had traditionally been right. the way in which carriers built their network, yeah. taking you know three to four years, costing you know three to five billion dollars, and carrying huge amounts of excess inventory. By the late 90s, you could go out and purchase dark fiber. And with advances in wave division multiplexing, that fiber would have virtually unlimited capacity. The second key you know, technological change was the advances in enterprise land routing. So traditionally, carrier networks were built on Sonnet SDH which had a number of expensive overhead protocols that were not relevant to the internet. And by taking land equipment and then deploying it on a global scale, you could drive down the cost of network construction. So those two events gave us the ability to build a purpose-built facilities-based network. And I think Cogent, even to this day, remains unique in that. So a long-winded answer to your question, Abby, <laughs> but uh, you know, how I got here was probably not the most conventional route. Well, no, it's fascinating to me because when I talk sometimes to, to I guess I'm old enough that sometimes I say kids, but people earlier in career, about different paths. And you know, when we got started, it was all nerd, it was all technology and, and before the great specialty. But today, it's like how often will you find a Linux kernel bug versus how often will you find a you know routing bug? And the analogy I often use is physics. Like the people that I had physics with used to say, you know, starting from the basic laws of physics, you know, how fast will the moon go around, whatever. And and you know, like in, in networking, 
there's enough bugs and complexity that sometimes you just need to get back to first principles and say what should be. And I think that's fascinating. Some people like it, you know, more than others, but uh, it's interesting to see the physics background. Do you remember when you developed the ability to sort of look at something and say this should exist but doesn't like as a as a as a business opportunity like you know because it seems like you know the story you told all three of those is like well there's this thing and taxi and uh but there's this optimization here or you know there's going to be this coming problem with people on the spectrum that need to move and or as you said regulatory you didn't say arbitrage but you know complexity our opportunity when, when did you you know, do you think that's something that people are born with, or is it is it is it you know family or? Well, probably a little bit of both. I mean, my dad was a cab driver, and I'm very lucky. I never had a real job. I started seven <laughs> companies, and the only job I've ever had is CEO. Uh-huh. Uh, and in my mind, that's overhead on the people that really <laughs> do the work. So I'm very conscious of uh, trying to add value when I can. And, you know, I think many entrepreneurs confuse developing a product with developing a business, Mm. which needs to be self-sustaining and able to grow. And then I think the second kind of opportunity comes from looking at the market And rarely does a company invent something that no one has ever seen before. I know Steve Jobs said, (laughs) I invented because no one else has ever seen this before. But, you know, whether it be, you know, his, you know, I guess, borrowing the concept of the mouse from Xerox Xerox, Park to the graphic interface. There's a new book about that I want to read. Yeah, on the first Newton yeah. Uh, you know, I think the reality is everybody builds off of existing technology. And to me, the opportunity comes from taking any business and being able to do it faster, cheaper, and better. Mm-hmm. If you could do those three things, typically, you know, you'll succeed. And in running a business, there are really two fundamental questions that you need to ask yourself. One, do people need what I'm selling? Uh, And then two, will they buy from me versus someone else? Once you've answered those two questions, you've got the basis for a business. It's actually the third one that's maybe the hardest one for most companies. And uh, that is, can I create a profit, an economic profit. That doesn't mean gap EPS profits. It means can I produce free cash? You said that, grow and make money. And and it's not just one or the other, right? That's correct. You got to be able to do both. You know, it's the old saying, I can sell a lot of dollars if I sell them for 50 cents a piece. (laughs) Um, You know, so, you know, it all starts with fundamental demand, your ability to meet that demand and differentiate yourself from others. And then the final question after you check those two boxes is, is this self-sustaining? And it's it's why so many venture-backed companies never reach kind of escape velocity. 
they typically get bought mm -hmm. by other companies because they're really a product or they're not self-sustained. Mm -hmm. So when I looked at the idea to build an internet provider, it seemed like the market was huge. The differentiation was substantial enough to give people a reason to buy from us. And then third, the economics would eventually work as long as we could reach scale. Mm -hmm. You know, in building Cogent, we also had to be disciplined about where we deployed the network. So in any utility, and the internet is a utility just like any other, uh, there's a natural monopoly. There should only be one. But the reality is for the internet, there's already three there. There's this overlay on top of the phone network, an overlay on top of the mobile network, and the more successful networks tended to be the overlays on top of cable. So you had to say, was my network good enough that I could overcome the disadvantage of not being an incumbent and having an existing plan? And in our case, the way we did that is being very thoughtful about the endpoints on the network, effectively cream skimming the market, going after the highest traffic locations, and those really fall into two major categories. We connect to just under 1 billion square feet of office space in North America, where we drive 60% of our revenues, mm -hmm. and that is as an end-user ISP, but the average building we serve is 550,000 feet, or the equivalent of about 12 football fields. So you wouldn't roof. serve your own building here? Uh, we actually do because we're here. Right. But yes, this would not be a coaching building if it was not right. for us physically occupying. Right. And then uh, secondly, we serve about 1,350 carrier neutral data centers in 50 countries around the world that are really supermarkets for bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And the important reason for our success is we ignore the millions of other buildings that we could serve, but we've concluded that we can't generate a high enough return on capital when we factor in our sales and marketing costs. So we're very selective about it's you you said a few different things in the last 20 minutes to unpack one of the things that i struggle with is uh, focus and one of the things that i've enjoyed working with cogent is seeing the focus because i often i maybe see too many opportunities out there and actually had some good friends before i started kentik say maybe you should just pick one. If you want to make an Akamai or a cogent size thing, maybe you should not try to do five things at once. But, you know, is that a struggle? Do you see these other opportunities and say, well, all these other carriers think that they need to get out of CapEx jail by making managed services or salespeople come in and say, hey, but we could sell this or resell this. Is, is there any temptation to, to break the model that's worked so well? No, no, I... Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything but temptation. <laughs> right. And 
you do need to be disciplined. And, and it's, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges for an entrepreneur because you start with a blank sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. You can literally do anything you want. Capital is fungible. And most businesses change course multiple times in their evolution. Actually, of the seven companies I've run, Cogent is actually the only one that stuck to its original Mm. business model and did not pivot uh, in mid-course. The problems are also exacerbated when you take venture capital because you then have a board that is very focused on the next new thing. So they're constantly looking for another shiny object and distracting the entrepreneur. Now on the flip side, the entrepreneur needs to be able to stay focused, but when things aren't working, know when to pivot. Don't ignore reality. Yeah, I mean, if, listen, if you're getting the messages from God, it's like, you know, it's like the, the person is like, why couldn't you help me? And it's like, you could buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> you, know? you know, maybe it's too simple minded, but I take the approach that when you go out to raise capital, the people you talk to are in the business of investing at capital. <clears throat> and if you talk to 50 people who really want to put capital to work, they all say it's a dumb idea. It probably is a dumb idea. Uh, You know, I understand entrepreneurs need to be determined. They need to be focused. They need to have the tenacity to plow through. No, and I agree with all of that. But, you know, once enough people tell you something doesn't work, you probably should try to pivot. Now, to be fair, I remember the, the telecom cousin days and hearing your pitch for the vision and, you know, we'll come back and talk about it. It was crazy times when, you know, sometimes timing favors your plans too, uh, with what was happening macro. But I thought you were a little crazy, uh, you know, at first. And so I say that with respect and pleasure at seeing what Cogent has done. I think that I'm not going to, I won't defend at least some of the VCs, you know, in this, this hour. But I think that there are some people that definitely get caught up. And it's true that VCs keep seeing the new hotness, the new hotness, the new hotness. But if, you know, there's some folks that focus on the fundamentals. Now, it is true that in the private market today, most people would rather have you ignore profitability for growth. Uh, That's generally true in VC. And right now, you know, even gross margin, as you said, selling the dollars for 50 cents. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm glad for all my friends in the private and public markets who are taking advantage of this market, but it is a little crazy when I do the math trying to figure out how everything uh, came together. So when you decided to start Cogent, you did raise some outside money? Was that, how much, so how much, and what year was that? Okay, so most of my career, I bootstrapped my companies. Mm -hmm. When I started my previous company, uh, we needed the credibility. The spectral arbitrage? Yeah, the arbitrage right. business. It was called PathNet. When I started PathNet, I bootstrapped it. I quickly realized in dealing with major companies, Fortune 100 companies, mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. they would not do business with a non-institutionally funded business. So I brought in external capital and grew that business. Mm-hmm 
by using other people's money. When I sold my position in that business, put in a management team, and then literally came in here, came to our old office, right. blocks from here I've been there. on a uh, Saturday afternoon. I wrote the entire coaching business plan that afternoon uh, in August of 99 and realized that we needed to raise capital. Now, if you can remember back, the world was on fire, <laughs> yeah. much like it is today. Yeah. We were actually a unicorn before companies were called unicorns. <laughs> we raised ultimately about $500 million in our seed round. Uh, we're about there now power, again. We're about right, there now off again. Of a PowerPoint. And at the time, Cogent was myself, and I was paying two 24-year-olds out of my pocket. One was an ex-banker from Morgan Stanley. The other woman was mm -hmm. from Anderson Consulting, now Accenture, who both wanted to work in a startup before going to business school. And uh, we had told our investors that to build the network that we contemplated, uh, it would take about $2 billion. That $500 million was the down payment. <clears throat> Sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. We raised the money. We started to hire a team and couldn't spend the money fast enough. The telecom market then imploded. It was a worse depression in technology than the Great Recession was in the financial industry. Yeah. If Akamai hadn't raised a billion dollars of debt, it would have gone It through. wouldn't have survived. Have and uh, that, that's true of virtually every... We got lucky. Again, we got lucky. You know, there was Listen, Amazon that was raised $600 million in a convert right before right. the market blew up and wouldn't have survived mm -hmm. if it had. Yeah. Um, and we had effectively a pool of capital, a good business plan, in a very small team, <laughs> we sat down with our investor base and we literally laid out three paths forward. One was liquidation and dividing out the cash that we had raised minus what we had already mm -hmm. spent, which was a small fraction of the money we had when we looked on 10%. The second option would have been for the current investor base to pledge incremental capital because there was no external sources available. And then the third path, which is what we debated and ultimately chose, was to use our capital to buy broken businesses. So a common mistake that many outsiders think of when they think of coaches, they think we were founded to buy up distressed assets. That's actually not true. We were founded to build an all IP over DWDM network, protected a layer three, using Ethernet as an interface, serving the highest traffic locations. You trusted that price would be the disruptive factor that would ensure, as you said, scale. Because to do that work, you need $2 billion, but it only works and it's profitable with growth, but only at scale. That's correct. So how do you get to scale? Telecom is absolutely a business of scale. So in many industries, there's the concept of a backward bending supply curve. So there are discontinuities where you have effectively diseconomies of scale. Right. 
marginal cost is always below average cost in telecom. So you had to get big fast. And we thought we had the right addressable markets. And in serving our customers, there were kind of two different uh, ways to show value. For corporate customers, it was not price. It was quality of service Mm. for price parity. So we went to the market offering in 2000, a 100 megabit, non-blocked and non-oversubscribed DIA product on a month-to-month Direct contract internet access for those. to that customer base for $1,000 when a T1 was $2,500. So you paid less, you got more throughput, it was ring-protected, mm-hmm. the building was pre-wired, so it typically installed in one-ninth the time, it was three times more reliable, and you got somewhere between 30 and 60 times the throughput for the same price. And no bills delivered on UPS trucks that you can't make out. None of that. It's just literally plugging in with an RJ45 to a fast Ethernet port. Mm-hmm. And uh, that model worked well for our corporate customers. Our corporate business generates only a small fraction, a couple percent of our total traffic, even though it's 60% Mm -hmm. of revenues. We have a second market segment that is totally different, which is selling bulk transit and data centers. Mm -hmm. In that market, there's only one dimension you compete on, and that is price. We came to market at $10 a megabit when the average price for transit in a data center was $300 a megabit. And that had recently been higher. Yeah, it had been as high as $5,000 a megabit. And we started at 10. Today, we sell sub 10 cents for many customers. The prices are going to keep coming down. Do you have a prediction how much per year, per decade, per five years? So over the past 20 years, per coach, the average price we sell at has fallen at about 23% per year. On the wholesale side? Wholesale or, side. Right. So this is measured services mm-hmm. metered in a data center where you're buying by the megabit. Prices are falling at 23% a year. Mm-hmm. The two technologies that allow that to occur are wave division multiplexing and optically interface routing. If you look at wave division multiplexing, that technology has improved since the mid 80s when it was first deployed, actually at the Lake Placid Winter Olympics was the first (laughs) deployment of a test, Mm -hmm. commercial test of a four-channel asynchronous wave division multiplex system uh, at roughly 80% per year compounded. Now put that against Moore's law, which is only 55% per year price performance improvement. And different than Moore's law, we're much further from the physical limitations. So I think the transport side will continue 
to improve at this very rapid pace for decades to come. The second technology is an optically interfaced router. So prior to coaching, routers had to be front-ended, usually with an ATM switch. So you had a sonnet box, you had an optical transport terminal that talked to a sonnet box that talked to an ATM switch that then talked to the router. By stripping all of that complexity out and going directly in a LAN-type architecture to IP directly over DWDM, we could ride the price decline curves in those routers. Now, the routing market has never been overly competitive. It's always been effectively a duopoly. And the price per packet forward for the past 30 years has declined at roughly 40% per year. So it's there are a couple of discontinuities there around OC12 where right. everything went straight Ethernet. You know? That's right. There's yeah. been step functions, right. but if you just but grab the last that five years have been awesome. Yeah. And I think we'll continue to see those types yeah. of improvements. If you look at the ASICs that are used in routers, they are typically still built on 19 nanometer traces. Today, new microprocessor fabs are being built on five or three nanometer traces. Today, seven is relatively right. common in the market. So there's a huge amount of catch-up that routing has to do to computing. It's, it's interesting because in the 90s, I used to say the router would have yeah, whatever a four-year-old high-end Macintosh would have. You're right. It's actually much more. It's stretched much more versus you know, the HPC chips and things like that and what people can do. Yeah, yeah and I think we will see a continuous improvement in routing technology decades to come. So with that, as long as the market for transit remains competitive, and yes, the competitive landscape has shrunk, other carriers have de-emphasized the product, but there's still enough diversity of suppliers Mm -hmm. that there's competitive tension, prices should continue to decline at 23% per year, and we'll be talking of fractions of a penny a probably yeah. over the next decade. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely been interesting to see. And, you know, we work in and with a lot of these folks and everyone has their different take. What's fascinating about Cogent is probably the highest terabit per, I'll say, backbone architect <laughs> of any company that I've seen. And I guess, is there is there a secret to running you know, lean effective teams, is it that focus that you don't bother them with other features? Is it is it um, something about the culture? What is it that enables, you know, such a tight, clueful lean team? So I think there's two major messages. One, you have to be relentless in driving down the cost of an interface routed bit mile. So an internet service provider sells internet access, but the reality is we produce Routed bit miles connected to other networks. Right. That's our factory. So everything we do is designed to drive that cost down. Two, it's about standardization. 
So our network is about 60,000 route miles terrestrially Mm -hmm. uh, spanning every continent. In addition to the long haul network, there's about another 17,000 route miles, about 40,000 fiber miles of metropolitan fiber in 215 markets, about 1,025 rings. Between those locations, we have just under 1,000, about 995 <laughs> optical transport nodes. And if you walked in to an amplifier site in the Ukraine, in Finland, in Sydney, or in you know, Wichita, Kansas, the rack faces, the diagrams will look identical. It's all about standardization. Is it all one single vendor? One vendor. We are end-to-end, a Cisco shop for routing and transport. Now, Cisco has never been the absolute best in any of those technologies. But the benefit of getting an additional half a generation of technology advance Mm. is eclipsed by the savings you get through standardization and operational simplicity. So there's a lot of do it once replicated at Cogent as opposed to bespoke design. And the product focus also is a big part of this. I mean, we basically sell three things. We sell internet connectivity. Mm -hmm. We sell VPN services on top of the internet. We sell space and power in our 54 data centers that we operate. And that's it. I didn't realize you had that many. Yeah. I've been to the old PSI net one in uh, in Herndon. Yeah. Yeah. Now, our biggest one is actually the old Earth link facility in Pasadena. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that wound up with you. Yep. That, that's, uh, I think, our largest. We have a pretty big one. I know you've recently relocated to Seattle. We have uh-huh. a big facility yep. in Seattle. Uh, we have them in New York. We have them in Madrid. We have them in Paris. We have them in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Literally around the world. We operate about 600,000 feet of raised floor space in those 54 centers with about 70 megawatts of power. So you're not competing for the Bitcoin mining market. Uh, no, no, people no. tend to want to be connected. Um, to, it's it's to enable people to connect things to the network uh, and take transit. It's it's for DRs for corporate customers who want to hmm. put a you know a backup facility but don't want to go into a carrier neutral at higher prices. Could be for some of our wholesale customers who look to co-locate directly adjacent with our network mm-hmm. and. These facilities also house the majority of our hubs. So we have roughly 191 cogent central offices in those like markets. Super pops? Or? Yeah, they're pops. They're, they're, basically, they're the intersection of the backbone and multiple rings of fiber in a metro. You go to the metro, right? Yeah. So, so you, you'll use the same ring for, I'll call it backbone, as you do for access to the buildings. Absolutely. But it's all waves, so it's not like it's stealing bandwidth from anything. There's, I mean, you just get a better prism and you've got more bandwidth. So one of the innovations that we did was our network is entirely ring architecture. There's no single points of failure. And we used wave division multiplexing 
to allow each building to be a logical oh, hub and spoke, right. but on a physical rank. So you get the best. best so you don't world. have to break it out at the IP layer in that building. That's correct. Right. Basically, it's on the wavelength. Right. Each building gets its own right. pair of wavelengths in two directions, both clockwise and counterclockwise. And if a fiber cut occurs, right. the restoration occurs through IP fast reroute right. as we're able to redirect the traffic. And you're still up to both devices in that pop. You know, they each have their own wavelength. That's correct. Right. And they have them in each direction. Right. So, so right. the network doesn't know that you're using the wavelength in the clockwise direction, right. but you're also using it in the counter. You don't have any fancy glimmer glass robots, uh, you know, fancy mechanical optical switches. And so no. I remember when some people called it, I won't, I won't say the acronym, but, um, you know, or it wasn't only CWDM course, but, you know, passive. And I remember uh, trading a wave with a big web company that starts with a G back when I was doing packet traffic 1.0 because they couldn't, they had to put this opto, the WDM equipment in, it was going to take, I don't know, like, like 10KW. I'm like, but it's optics. Why are you taking 10KW for a prism? But they were uh, running NEMS. Right, right. And, well, well, as here. you said, it's all the OC stuff. It's all the protective, you know, protocols and all that. But, you know, yeah, if you overbuy, I mean, yeah, if you're going to space, you have to be really careful and maybe, you know, if you want different protocols, but there's enough fiber. Uh, or as Dave Rand at AboveNet said, QoS should be quantity of service. Right? And that's always <laughs> our model. There is no QoS prioritization. Queuing, you, yeah. suck, you throw bandwidth at every problem mm -hmm. and all the problems disappear. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny because I remember when I came to AboveNet, Dave was like, someone wants an OC. All we deliver is Ethernet. Someone wants an OC. They could put it in their rack, but our endpoint is the Ethernet. And then you took it one step further, like make the Ethernet come to the come to the customer. That's correct. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's funny with with a network like yours, there must be something down all the time. Is there ever a time when no circuit is down anywhere? So with the breadth of network, we will typically have two to three fiber cuts terrestrially every day somewhere in the world. Yeah. I mean, backhoes just seem to have a backhoe. Backhoe back digging deep to make yeah, the backhoe. They, they find fiber. It's almost like yes. they got a divining rod <laughs> directly to the fiber. But the ring architecture gives us a lot of resiliency. We've actually never had a backbone outage in 20 years of operation. We're very cautious about rolling out new code. We have, again, a lot of redundancy built in the network. And a simple product stack. But yeah, the, listen, endpoint customers can go down. Typically, we're running about 0.03 of a percent of port seconds that are down on our network in a given week. Mm -hmm. We actually monitor that, meet on it every week to try to improve it. Mm -hmm. And almost... All of those typically are the customer prem equipment either failing, right? Someone unplugging it, right? I'm not saying we never have an outage, someone does a fat finger uh, config, but for the most part, the network is very, very resilient. No, we've seen that as well. I mean, really, which I guess gets to the next topic in the 90s, if, if COVID had hit and we had tried to 
all ship each other webcams and use the internet, I'll just say it wouldn't have worked very well. Would have failed. <laughs> it was too much massive oversubscription. Remember, our local network is non-oversubscribed and non-blocked. So there is no statistical multiplexing in our but you don't peer with people at every i mean some people you peer more widely but you don't peer in every metro with so most of our interconnection is actually customer to customer mm -hmm. so cogent today runs bgp sessions with about 7600 ass's i don't think there's anybody who's ever even approached that number we're running roughly 25,000. When the internet sessions. is your customer, you peer with many networks. So, um, you know, when Cogent got started, we obviously had de minimis market share. And very beginning, we had to buy upstream. And we were supplementing that with very open peering policy. Mm -hmm. Today, we peer with less than 25 networks globally. So you flipped it from open to be my customer. Well, I would say peer. that the strategy has stayed the same. The difference has been the bar to be our peer has yeah. gone up as our as scale has, has gone, gone right. up. And, um, you know, I think we are the most interconnected network. So obviously we're running BGP mm -hmm. sessions and over 1,350 endpoint locations, those data centers. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're pretty flexible on where we'll peer. We can actually peer at any one of those facilities mm -hmm. if someone wants to peer or we sell transit, right. which is in fact how most of our interconnection occurs right. today. Right, but there is gonna be some, there is some oversubscription getting between networks, but it's, 50x less, I don't know the exact number than it was in the 90s. You know, I mean, when I started at Akamai, I remember asking the Zen question, if all we're doing is optimizing, you know, around the congested paths, then at some point, well, we have done all the optimization, the internet will suck equally for everybody. But I think we just got fortunate that uh, one, you know, things have evolved. And as you say, the costs have come down so much. And two, most, most of the, the networks that I've seen and, and worked with had ordered enough in advance when Cogent hit that even before the supply chain stuff started getting bad, they had either built or they had equipment ready. So, uh, you know, there was enough capacity pre-built that when more things went online, you know, things uh, did okay. So how has that been for Cogent? So let me address the oh, sure. oversubscription piece. So clearly we don't dictate to our customers what size ports they buy. Right. But we price our service in such a way that most of our customers generally utilize 20 or 30 percent of their port capacity and kind of an average. Right. So you're willing to give people that kind of burst. That's correct. You can't buy five megabits and get a hundred gigabit port, but right. Yeah, we, we try to be very flexible and we have in excess of a exhibit of capacity to other networks. Mm -hmm. uh, so very, very broad reach, both in geography and in scale. The 25 networks we peer with, because these are non-monetary agreements, right. 
they tend to be stingier than we are in terms of. I saw that at above net too. We were like, well, why don't we just do 10x, not 2x the capacity? And we're like, no, that's okay. We're, you know, we're good. We'll just yeah. do 2x. Yeah, they tend to want to ration out bandwidth, usually because their networks can support it. And at the end of the day, I think most telecom companies and cable companies won't admit is the internet. The internet is their worst nightmare. It drives up the load on their network by orders of magnitude and concurrently drives revenues down by orders of magnitude. So if you were a phone company, you love selling 64 kilobit hot circuit that people use uh, basically 1,400 right. minutes a month at 64 kilobits. And life was great. So the bill for 25 bucks and they had no choice. And you were great. Or conversely, if you're a cable company, you would take a six megahertz channel, deliver video over it. It was shared between all of the end users asymmetrically. And you charge them, you know, 80 bucks a month and life was good. Now, the customers demanding hundreds of megabits of end user oh, yeah. capacity. And the content is moving to the internet instead of necessarily from your network. So your revenues are going down while your capital expense is going up. So legacy providers who still dominate the internet, whether they be telephone, cable, or mobile phone, mm -hmm. all take the internet. In other words, if so John Stanky could go to bed tonight at AT&T and wake up in the morning and the internet was gone. He'd be a happy man. I would say that, I'm not going to name names, some non-eyeball carriers do still have that. Let's just double the ports and not, you know, 4 to 10x. Some eyeball networks do better than others or the IP engineering people. Um, I had Elliot Noss on and we had, to, we had to edit out a few things that were said about Tokos from his experience too. Uh, so, you know, sometimes the IP engineering team is 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 doing the right thing. But I understand what you're saying. I'm talking about, about the corporate. Right. If you took a rational person and made them the CEO of the company and they look at the inputs and say, what makes, what helps my company and what is a threat, then yes. Right. But if you built the right network and you built it around the products that people want, you can actually make money as an ISP. Well, I, I think that they're, well, that was, so I had Elliot Noss on and I was like, why, why? He called me, I don't know, 2016. It was like, I want to start an ISP. Do you want to help? I'm like, what, who bit you? Like, what got it? It's like, no, no, we're going to make money. We're going to, it's a mitzvah, but we're going to make money. And like, why not? You know, and for him, he's been working on solving like billing challenges, which is one of the problems that you solved, you know, early on. For, but it's still a huge, you know, problem for a lot of companies. You know, yeah, I, I would say some, again, some of the incumbents, some of those, some of those folks do have very modern networks, you know, and IP sits at the sits underneath, um, and then some of them are straddled with fiber plants where they've got, you know, 300 dB loss from side to side because there's 40 splices. So, you know, yeah, it's it's an interesting market, and it's and also as we talked about, like. What's how many products do most of those companies have? They've got consumer, they've got business, they've got many different products. And again, it's uh, it can be hard to navigate. And it's interesting working with companies that have focus versus working with broader companies, you know, and seeing that. So with COVID, 
how did that how did that affect from the I guess I'll say the the people culture side and the business side? You know, uh, so let's start with to... our coaching team. We put their safety first. We have about eleven hundred employees, and in March of twenty twenty, they all work remotely, and they continued through October of twenty one to be remote in the US, and in some parts of the world, they are still remote. Mm-hmm. Um, as vaccines became available, we implemented a mandatory mandatory, vac- mandatory vaccine policy, and we have uh, required employees to come back because there is a huge benefit for people collaborating face to face, and the culture of the company is a interesting mix of mature processes with startup drive, and that's really what we try to maintain. Uh, in our customer bases, there's really been two very different tales from COVID. For our corporate customers, demand fell off. The access Companies, building, they, using the offices. They don't know what the future is going to look like. They, they know their employees are working from home. They upgraded their VPN concentration ports, but you know, they're not willing to make massive re-architecture of their businesses and networks, particularly migrate away from MPLS to a SD-WAN or VPLS solution until they have clarity on what the new work environment is going to look like. For our wholesale business, we saw an acceleration as people stayed home, they had more time, and they streamed more. So we have thousands and thousands of access networks around the world that buy upstream. Their consumers were spending more hours a day. They needed more bits. We've seen that in the Kentuck data, you know. Also, yeah, and yeah. we've been accommodating them. Over 100 PTTs around the world, for example, buy their upstream from Cogent. And then on the content side, you know, the streamers and the application providers have seen unprecedented demand. And there's been a wave of new entrants, whether it's Disney or Amazon, that are broadening out the streaming market. And, you know, that has helped that business. It's Mm -hmm. actually, we've had the best two quarters over the last two quarters in the company's history in that hosting. I haven't haven't read your your quarterly filings or the transcripts, but you consider that the same business, the, the access business for service providers and the content? Side that's all wholesale or all you, you break this out? Okay. We, tra- so we trade it identical. Okay, so it is that. Okay. Well, we coined the term net centric, and it just means we're selling bulk bandwidth yeah. to someone who's reselling yeah. our bandwidth, either as an access provider mm-hmm. or with the content. Right. Companies where sneaker net was never an option. That's right? correct. Their, their network is their business, delivers the revenue. We have similarly, we have traditional enterprise, and then we have net centric, you know, as well, yeah. which is, yeah. That's a logical dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. So what was the reaction to mandatory vaccination? You know, we lost a few employees, not many, mm-hmm. a few. We had uh, a lot of counseling to do, a lot of controlling. And it's, you know, it's a combination of making sure coworkers are safe, making sure the work environment is safe, and quite honestly, making sure our employees are safe. Mm-hmm. And it's a balancing act between people's personal liberties and public 
health safety. Right. And we also we are in a society. Yeah, we're social animals, (laughs) and we also had to weigh the benefits of getting people together versus the isolation of being on our own. And we have a big sales organization, and that sales organization typically has churn. Salespeople come and go, some very quantitative, some succeed, Mm -hmm. some do not. And to train new salespeople, even though we've developed very robust online and classroom training materials that can be done remotely, there's no substitute for a mentor on the next desk. So, yeah. And, you know, we just had to get people back to support that growth of the sales organization. I'm told that I shouldn't say osmotic learning because people don't know what I'm talking about, but. It is funny that how just absorb yeah, into yeah, it's funny how but I try not to use dictionary words. Uh, you know, COE speaks simply and clearly and everyone can understand you. But but yeah, I mean it's it's interesting in networking how in many professions how much we are not that far from the middle ages of you know Padawans and apprentices and um, not about power structure and do my work for me for free, but no, it is known in, in the, the Game of Thrones. Like, oh, it is known. Like, did you not know that? Um, did you not know that that network doesn't have that or that that has, you know, if you turn on that protocol that way, it has that problem or, and there's ways of doing it constructively, which is not like you are an idiot, but more like, hey, one might think this, but actually, so yeah, that's it's definitely interesting. I, I, I'll tell a story. I remember early on in coaching, I had some exceedingly talented routing engineers who do far more about routing than I did. I consider myself an amateur hacker best. <laughs> and, you know, maybe as more of a classically trained person, I came into a problem and whiteboarded the Kronigsberg Bridge problem. Uh-huh. They didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but they knew how to fix the problem. Right. So I'm thinking of it more the way Euler think, thought right. of the problem. They're thinking about like, oh, I've seen this, and this is how I need Right. Well, there is a lot of pattern matching, but that reminds me of a story, probably why I don't teach. I had a great teacher who was a doctor who got into image processing. And when I went to Temple University the first day, I met this this guy, uh, Paul Follett, and I met Bob Stafford, who did networking. And I was like, oh, AI image processing, that's the really interesting stuff. Networking, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I, Mm -hmm. I got into networking even more, but... And so he taught a class on real-time systems. Um, and he asked a question on the exam, why do tires appear to be going backwards? Now we had studied Nyquist and sampling rates and all that. And so, but a lot of people in the class thought it was unfair that he'd asked a question that we didn't, we didn't, we never talked about tires, right? Mm-hmm. And he was asking to make the leap from computers to brains and your eyes sampling. And so uh, sometimes that, that, you know, from first principles, the, again, the classic physics education of let's let's reason and understand um, is at war with the practical real world. Well, yeah, or as as you know, again, we talk. I talk with academics, and I was like, you have to understand the internet is a bunch of garage mechanics banging on routers with wrenches. And like, yes, there is science here, but it is not primarily science. It is it is definitely an art. Like car, t- I want to do car talk for the internet. You know, it's like what sound is your router making? 
Uh, but you sort of see that, right? It's like you log in or, you know, API, whatever you do, and this thing is like that. You're like, aha, I think that's something we need to formalize, not just because of COVID, yet for us, as we strive to be even more diverse, the most diverse set of folks is earlier in career. And yeah, how do you get those people and how do you train them both about networking and then what level? Right now for Kentec, we are, we gave up our office because we couldn't use it when the term was up and we're doing a lot of collaboration, but you know, we'll see how that goes. What what percentage of of the company is is local in DC? You mentioned you have multiple offices. So uh, we actually have forty offices around the world, uh, mostly sales oriented. Mm. We also have you know about ninety people in our field services organization that either can work in an office or some are so remote they work from home. Right. But here in D.C., there's about 200 of us out of the 1,100, mm -hmm. probably another 100 or so in northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. So about 300 of the 1,100 in this area, and the rest of the company is truly global, from okay. Singapore to Stockholm to Seattle to L.A. <laughs> I won't make you name them all. Um, or ask, uh, you know, when's the last time you visited all of the offices? You know, my goal pre-COVID was to get to every office once a year. Oh, every year? Every year. And I did pretty well. I would typically get about 35 of the 40 done in a year. Wow. Uh, that was pretty much my pace for the past decade. Uh, and then COVID hit, and... I've been to an office outside of DC in two years. <laughs> I just last week was the first week I was at home for three months. It felt like three years ago. And it started in the middle of that was KubeCon, which was mostly vacant, very safe, with lots of space between spaces, uh, between booths. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago in Vegas for reInvent, it was like almost full, even as Omicron was, you know, was firing up. So, you know. It's interesting. Gail has type 1 diabetes, so we try to stay safe, and uh, people are coughing on each other, stay away, and we have to decide whether we want to go to the masquerade at the World Science Fiction Convention with all the people. So, And we have pretty strict protocols here in the office, and really do try to keep people safe. So even, even with mandatory vaccination, people still mask in the Absolutely. office? Absolutely. If you're in an open space or if you're walking around, you have masks. If you have a private office with a door on it, you mm -hmm. can take your mask off while at your desk. Mm -hmm. Absent at masks all the time. Awesome. I mean, I, I can tell you that there are definitely, we're doing an offsite in January and then Omicron hit, we're still planning to do it. And number one, you know, as we talk to people, they want to feel safe, you know, be comfortable that <coughs> um, we're protecting that. So two last questions. What percentage of, of uh, cogent hires are, I would say, early in career. Um, you mentioned sales, you know, in engineering. You know, do you prefer to hire senior people and bring them in, or is there a thought? Of, do, do you try to wait one way or the other? So it's kind of a tale of two different workforces. Cogent's operations team have average tenure of about 12 years. Right. We actually I know, have, I know, longer. All the people I know have longer. Yeah, many yeah. of the people have been here 20 years. Yeah. I mean, we have very little turnover on the operations side. So we just don't do a lot of hiring. I mean, occasionally people retire, someone moves off, and then you know, we'll bring in. Is the not a traditional place for technologists to come in? 
typically we're looking for people who, who have interest, but not necessarily the exact skills we need, and we'll train them. Uh, there was some kind of engineering computer science background. And then on the sales side, it's a very different story. There, I would say the average hire is in their late 20s. We hire some older people. Uh, we have a huge turnover, 70, 80% a year in the sales recession. Number 10, we have salespeople. I know a lot of people that started their career in sales at Cogent. Yeah, uh, but you know, it's, sales is brutal. It's very quantitative and it's very demanding. Cold calling, which is how our sales model is organized, is probably the hardest job you can imagine. Recruiting number two, sales number one. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for that reason, mm -hmm. people say they could do it, train them, and communicate. It is very hard. So there, the average hire is probably late 20s, second or third job selling, uh, but not necessarily. So not right, right out of college. Not right out. We do hire right out of college, but generally not. It's usually you sold cars, you sold insurance, you sold. Uh, we have people sell cemetery plots. We've had people sell, you know, uh, life insurance, yeah. medical supplies. Yeah. More technology. Mm -hmm. And then we train the technology component of it. And, you know, some succeed and some don't. But on the operations side, we have a very stable workforce. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely seen that. But um, it's as we get larger, that's just something we've been thinking about is, is what is the what is it that it takes to train people um, as we started and we just had a big network of people that had a lot of experience but if you hire from your network then you know you don't have diversity of, of thought and opinion and wisdom and, uh, and background so working on that I guess last question if you could go back to um, taxi Dave uh, earlier earlier on, any any uh, any lessons or advice? You know, listen, I, I think everyone kind of has to find their own path. I think you know I'm often asked by salespeople what makes me successful, and your basic life skills. It's the tenacity to stick with something. It's the flexibility to change when you need to change. It's organizational skills. You know, time is your most precious asset and you have to organize your time. You have to set goals and you don't always reach them. I mean, I start every day with a still a white notepad with a to-do list. I say I won't take a picture of it, but I see it. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I got literally decades <laughs> of notepads that, you know, I've worn through uh -huh. and, uh, you know, what I, I used to, to use about, index cards and now I use VI. You know, I, so. I, I know I can do more high tech than that, but it's it's old fashioned. And I just tell people, manage your time, focus on what you want to get accomplished, set realistic goals, and success will come. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Thank you thank for you sharing. For, thank you for hosting, Avi. Absolutely. Well, thank you for physically hosting me. I know. The Cogent story is fascinating, and you've got a lot of customers out there, and people want to look at Cogent. It's cogent.com. Any other ways? Are you with the social? I'm not a very social guy. 
People can reach out. I talk to customers all the time. Okay, so being a customer, the best way to get connected. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Andy.